WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we're welcoming the writer of such comics at Marvel as New Mutants, Ghost Rider, Uncanny X Men, and X Force, and at Image Comics, Come Back and Sheltered, and the Kickstarter, Catch and Release, a Murder Book Story, Ed Brisson. Welcome, Ed. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, we like to start off by asking our guests, uh, you know, what, what comics they remember uh, reading when they first got into comics. <laughs> Uh, the first things I remember reading um, were I got into reading comics pretty young age and read stuff like uh, Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider Ham, and Captain Carrot and his amazing Zoo Crew and that sort of stuff. Um, and then sort of quickly graduated to uh, Daredevil, Spider Man, Punisher, uh, GI Joe, and Transformers. Really big uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nom was another favorite of mine back then. Uh, of course, X Men. And uh, things like Manhunter, Batman, obviously. Uh, to, that, that was largely it, you know, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. What was your, do you sort of remember your, your like opening salvo of, of Batman? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I wish I did. I, I used to buy all my stuff from like the 10 cent bin originally. And so I had stuff from all over uh, uh, from like, mid 70s to sort of mid 80s so i was i was kind of all over the place it was real nothing i read nothing sequentially it was all just whatever was there like the place that we used to i used to buy most of my 10 cent comics from a used bookstore when i was younger and they just jammed all the comics and they weren't in any sort of order not alphabetical Mm -hmm. uh, definitely not you know in in issue order so i would just kind of go through one box buy uh, I think my allowance is $2, so I get about 20 comics a week and mm-hmm. just read them. Yeah, I did something similar. There was an antique shop around the corner from my grandmother's house. And when I was going, I'd go into the antique shop and I think they were 50 cents and I used my grandmother to give me five bucks so I could get 10 comics. And I, nice. I got, I remember I was super excited that I got the giant size Batman 400 pretty early. And it was like, oh, that was like... <coughs> Uh, so, um, as we, uh, release this, uh, we are, uh, on the last full day of your Kickstarter catch and release. Uh, here's the description for those who haven't checked it out. By the way, we were recording this about a week before that, but we will be on that last full day when we release, uh, catch and release a murder book story is about a thief who concocts a plan to sell a stolen car, not once, but several times by luring unsuspecting buyers to a remote remote location and robbing them at gunpoint. His plan hits a snag when he encounters a student who needs a fresh set of wheels to travel to his new life out West. When things go South, they go South hard. And now our car thief stands on the precipice where he has to make a choice that will affect not only his life, but that of his co-conspirator and their two victims. The story is an examination of one man's guilt and how far he's willing to go to stay out of jail. I just want to point out, you read those better than me, I think. <laughs> I might just have you read all the synopses for yeah, you might on. You might have done it better than me, too. I might get you from an next Kickstarter video. Thanks. I tend to speed through them. <laughs> <laughs> I, if you watch my Kickstarter video, because I, I read almost that same thing, and I, I think I recorded that at least 300 times uh just over and over again i like at one point i was up till four in the morning recording it repeatedly oh boy i'm not not a guy who loves being in front of the camera and reading stuff so Mm -hmm. 
it's why that this is an audio medium yes. for us. I would be much more self-conscious if people could see me. Um, but uh, before we get into this volume specifically, um, what's the origin of the murder book stories? So murder book was a thing I started in 2010. And uh, before that, I'd been self-publishing comics for about 16 years. So I'd been writing and drawing everything myself because uh, initially I wanted to get into the comic book industry as an illustrator. Uh, I went to fine arts. Um, you know, I, I was drawing and, and publishing comics, you know, publishing. I was photocopying them at Kinko's, you know, and selling them through local comic shops and such. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I originally didn't want to be a writer. I just wanted to be an artist. And I only started writing because I didn't know any writers. Uh, back then, this is um, like early to mid '90s. Internet's not what it is now. Uh, now, you know, if you were an artist looking for a writer, you'd be swarmed. You know, uh, but back then, uh, it just I couldn't find any. So I just started writing because I didn't know any writers and and I needed something to draw. And I did that for 16 years while I was writing and drawing my own stuff and and like I said, self-publishing it. And then in 2010, I realized that. Uh, um, I don't, I don't like drawing. I don't like the process of illustration much. Like it, it's that thing that, you know, I'd wanted to do, you know, as long, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to be Todd McFarlane, you know, uh, for the longest time. And, and I realized that it was the writing that, uh, that I enjoyed. And so I stopped in 2010, I stopped drawing and focused on writing and I decided to, and at the point I'd also pitched a couple things to publishers that hadn't get, gotten picked up. And I had this idea that I wanted to get into comics as a writer. Uh, I'd seen that like, you know, not be, trying to be an artist, you know, we could put, artists could put portfolio pages up online. Very easy for editors to browse and, and an editor can tell within 20 seconds if that's something they like or, or, or something they don't like. Um, for me, I, I was trying to figure out a way how to do something similar with writing um, and it made sense to do short stories, five page stories, something that an editor can consume quickly. But at the same time, weirdly, I was not pitching to publishers. I kind of had decided I was going to take a break from that, but wanted these sort of bite-sized things that, that people could read fairly quick. And so I started writing murder book on, on my birthday in 2010 and, uh, just sort of paired up with some writers or some, sorry, some artists who I knew locally when I was living in Vancouver. So you know, Simon Roy and uh, Johnny Christmas and, and Jason Copeland all, you know, live close to me. You know, they, you know, we, we hung out all the time. And, um, you know, Michael Walsh was a guy who I met online when I, I used to do some comic book lettering and he and I really hit it off back uh, when we met, I think first in 2010. And so I would just sort of contact these artists and, you know, we would just sort of team up to do these five, to 10 page short stories. They're crime stories. They were in black and white for a couple of reasons and black and white just suits crime really well. And also because I was, you know, bankrolling this, uh, it's much cheaper to, to do something in black and white than it is in color. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I just did these five to 10 page crime stories because crime is a genre I love. It's a crime that I know, or sorry, it's a genre I know is, is a niche genre and not a lot of publishers are typically interested in doing crime. Um, crime books. So I, I thought kind of screw it. I'm just going to do the stuff I want to do. Tell stories that largely I was writing these stories for myself. I was just writing stories to, 
appease myself at this point and not really worried about uh, trying to impress editors, trying to impress anyone. I just wanted to do these stories uh, that I would want to read. And yeah, I started doing that from 2010. And I think I did, I don't know how many stories we did, uh, you know, <clears throat> about 12, 15, I think in total between 2010 and 2015. So I haven't done one since 2015. Though. So that's, that's kind of what they are. They're, they're just like short crime stories and sort of uh, usually with some sort of Twilight Zone-y style uh, twist at the end in turn, not Twilight Zone in that it's fantastical or, or, or sci-fi or anything like that, just a, a, a sort of twist on the narrative um, that, that has a, you know, pulling the rug out from the reader sort of feel to it. Um, now you talked about putting these together as sort of, you know, five page, uh, you know, pitches and, and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, apart from that, you know, how are you sort of getting murder book out there? Are you like taking this to, you know, are you getting like small artist alley table that shows, you know, that yeah, sort of so thing? I was putting them up online for free to read. Um, Cause one of the things that I had sort of realized at that point from, I talked to a bunch of people who had been doing comics that they were trying to do sort of a, a paywall system or some way to generate money from, mm -hmm. from doing comics online. And it's just not, at least then especially was not sustain it's not a thing that you can make m money more than say pizza money and i figure like there's no i i was after eyeballs versus getting paid so i would put them up online for free for folks to read and then i would start going to conventions and i would print out copies uh i would um i actually went and, and had them professionally printed on you know a big web press uh, i think a thousand copies of each and i would I think the first the first few were around 10, 10 or so pages. So each issue I would print would have two copies or two stories in each issue. And they would come in, come in around, I don't know, like 24 pages or whatever it was. Um, and then, yeah, I would bring those to shows. I would have artist alley tables at uh, shows, uh, you know, all over the place. I, I, as many shows as I could get at to, I would, I would get at to. No. As you said, you hadn't done one of these since 2015. Correct. Was this something where you've had this itch in the back of your head for a while, or did the idea for catch and release just sort of hit you and you're like, okay, I need to get back to this now? No, it was, it's always been sort of pulling at me. Um, I talked about this a little bit uh, elsewhere, but uh, I did a book at Image called The Violent in 2010. And when The Violent was initially conceptualized, it was supposed to be Murder Book, the ongoing series. That's what it was going to be. But then we signed a deal with Dark Horse, who collected and released all the Murder Book stories I'd done. So I couldn't do that at Dark Horse and then go over to Image and do the same thing. And so before pitching it, Adam and I changed it, changed the title to The Violent. Um, so 2016, I, I was still sort of scratching that crime itch. Uh, but 2016 is when I started to get... Uh, um, more work with big two publishers, you know, I was doing a lot of work for Marvel um, up until, you know, still um, from 2016 onward. And um, I always thought that I would have the opportunity to do work for hire and do creator owns. You know, like I said, you know, before Murder Book, I was already self-publishing stuff for 16 years. Uh, and then for between 2010 and, and uh, 2016, you know, for two years, I was self-publishing stuff. And in, from 2012 onward, I was doing books with Image. So I was doing creator-owned stuff still. 
And so I'd always hoped that I could do big two and I could do creator owned. And I sort of got myself to the point where I, it, I had so much work for hire work on my plate, you know, big two work that I couldn't do creator owned stuff. And it always had been bothering me. Uh, come, uh, murder book is always one of those things I really wanted to get back to. Um, but it was, I wanted to do it when I had time to do it right. I didn't want to just kind of come back and, and, and just crap one out. You know, I wanted to make sure it was like a solid, not that I'd ever crap a story, but you know, like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so at the beginning of this year, we, you know, the pandemic came. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this, this thing. Uh, and it, uh, it really sort of screwed up a lot of uh, things I had going on um, uh, schedule-wise. Like it, it, um, I was in the, at the point just before it hit where I was wrapping up on a few projects at, at Marvel and was about to start new projects and the new projects got pushed back. So I had like a long period of nothing where I was just sitting at home and realized that like, uh, you know, I, I'm not really good at just sitting around. And so I realized that this was the opportunity for me to finally get back and do creator own work. And so I think, you know, the, a bunch of my books got put on hold or, or delayed on a Friday. And by Monday I was writing creator own stuff. So I, I started on murder book. I actually spent a week, writing a different murder book story that I just wasn't happy with. And so sort of shelved it. And then the week after I started on this one and wrote it, I it took a, like um, writing the script itself didn't take terribly long. It took a few weeks, but I actually spent a lot of time revising and sculpting and sort of reworking it until it was sort of as tight uh, as possible. But it was something I always wanted to get back to. I didn't expect when I came back that it would be a much, much, that the, my first murder book story would be much longer than all past murder book stories. Um, but that sort of is a welcome change. I think coming back, um, I don't want to do it the same that I did before. I'd like to make changes and, and having these longer stories gives me the opportunity to sort of tell uh, more about the, the characters involved and more about who they were leading up to this and, and who they were sort of coming out of this thing. Whereas the, past murder book stories are usually about the thing happening and, and more about the immediate sort of anxiety or whatever around the incident, whereas this gives us much more room to play. So it was a thing I wanted to do. Definitely. Like I said, I want to get back to creator own. So I did this and then I wrote a couple of other creator own things after that, that I'm in the process of pitching about. I just signed on one uh, contract on one and the other one is about to get pitched out fairly soon. Nice. The description of the story with the, you know, the scheme gone wrong has a very Coen Brothers fiasco sort of vibe. Um, does this have some of that sort of Coen Brothers bleak humor or is it, you know, straighter down the line crime than that? Than that? I would, I would say it's probably straighter down the line crime. There's, there's a bit of, there are a bit, a little bit of, uh, a couple scenes that are maybe humorous, darkly humorous, but it's not an overall thing. Not not in the way that, say, Fargo is. Um, but it, it's more, I don't know. For me, it's like crime is always more interesting. Like a, a good crime story is when the crime goes wrong, right? Like, and, and that's sort of just the case here. It's just this scheme that this guy comes up with, which is an actual, uh, you know, I, I wish I could take credit for making up this sort of, 
scam of, of listing a car and luring someone out and robbing them, but it's a, it's an actual thing um, uh, that has happened in the past. Uh, it was one of those things that I, I had a clipping around here somewhere from a, from a news story about someone doing the same. And uh, so just sort of uh, hung on to it, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty dark story, but it's, it's kind of, in the same way as sort of the violent ones, it's kind of about someone being pulled back into a life that they thought they'd sort of moved on from, which seems to be a theme that I love to revisit uh, in stories. But uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bleak, to be honest. Um, you were you were put an update on the, uh, the Kickstarter recently, uh, talking about why this particular uh, book, uh, murder book story, is set in Halifax, whereas past ones were set in Vancouver. And, and how you'd moved your family there uh, a couple of years ago after uh, never quite getting to Halifax as a youth, uh, you know, when you were fascinated with the, with the music scene and all that. Um, was Halifax everything that you'd hoped it would be as a new resident? <laughs> it kind of is. Like for the longest time, it was my Shangri-La, right? Like, uh, you know, my wife and I have been together for 23 years, uh, you know, for a long time anyway. And, uh, Anytime the idea of moving like reared its head, I was always like Halifax, let's go to Halifax. But she, uh, you know, uh, we were living in Vancouver for, for, you know, uh, while I was there for about 20 years, I think her and I in total, uh, from the time we started dating to we left was about 19 years. Um, And she had never left the lower, like the lower mainland, which is Vancouver and surrounding area. And uh, so she was just not, excited about moving uh that far and and for those who who are not uh you know up on uh, u.s geography like vancouver and 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 uh and halifax would be like moving from los angeles to like the easternmost coast of maine it's it's like that far far across um <clears throat> so yeah it was uh it's a thing where i always wanted to go to and yeah, so far so good. It's a it's a little bit of a different vibe here. It's a lot uh, lot slower paced, uh, less population density. Uh, I like it. I, I will say I, I do miss all the restaurants in Vancouver, uh, but because of that, I've become a much better cook since moving here because I've been trying to like recreate the sort of stuff that uh, we can't get out this way. Uh, no, uh, true to uh, New Jersey form, uh, my wife's equivalent of Halifax is is Florida. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's all, she wants to go to Florida. Suburbs, you- suburbs outside Orlando, I think. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but uh, no offense, but woof, <laughs> too hot, too sticky, and I always have my dad in the back of my head, who when all of his brothers and sisters started moving down there, he's like. No, it's it's where old Jews go to die. It's God's waiting room. <laughs> For Halifax, there's like a ton of people who live here like, who are retired who have winter places down there. They're called snowbirds, and they oh uh, yeah, they go down there uh, during the winter and stay here during the summer. So a popular destination from from this side of the country. Yeah, we we, ha- we have snowbirds up here in the the Jersey area too. Right. Uh, so. The artist for Catch and Release is, pardon me if I completely butcher this name, uh, Lissandro Esteren. Yeah, it's a, 
That's great. Okay. I, I'm assuming that's great. I've actually never heard it said out loud. <laughs> oh, okay. I, but it sounds incredible. Okay. Listen, for all intents and purposes, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, who you'd worked with uh, on the last contract uh, from Boom Studios. When you started developing Catch and Release, did you immediately have Lissandro in mind for this book? I had him in mind. I had talked to him, though. So it was a thing where I, I started writing it. And um, <clears throat> I, I kept picturing his artwork while I was writing it because he's got this very um, sort of European sensibilities to his art that I love. And he's got a very like sort of uh, fine arts um, sort of take on it. Like he, he does these like beautiful sort of ink wash, like almost watercolor style uh, landscapes and, and scenery and such that I really wanted to lean into when I was writing. So, you know, uh, we have like the opening page, the whole book is just like a, a splash sort of um, scenery of trees and, and just a car sort of driving in and we're pulled back quite a bit like to really isolate the car. And it's just, it's just such a beautiful, like you can hang it on your wall. It's just so beautiful. And uh, every chapter break going through, so I think there's seven chapters in, in this book. Each one opens with a similar sort of, uh, sort of portrait, almost uh, a portrait uh, landscape, um, painting and uh it's just beautiful so yeah i always had him in mind i so I, I lent into the stuff i know that he loves doing he and i have very similar interests in terms of like fiction and and, and like comics and, and and books and such so i knew that this was the kind of stuff that he would probably be into and yeah from day one i wanted him to to be on this because i'd seen his black and white art in the past and had always wished that the world got to see it, that, that more people got to see his black and white art, which is not, I, I always, you know, I have to add a disclaimer when I say that is not a knock against anyone who's ever colored his work uh, because the last contract I think looks great. Uh, the, the colors look great, uh, mm -hmm. but I always just wanted to see his black and white art out there. Are, are these murder book stories sort of like jamming with your friends when it comes to artists? Like you start working with somebody and after a little while it's like, yeah, you know, this is a guy who I could guy in the general sense, not in the specifically male sense. Just sure, yeah. Out, um, that you think they'd be good on a murder book. Yeah, it's kind of, it used to be like um, a lot of the, the folks who I worked on murder book with on the, in the past, we've gone on to do something else after that, right? Uh Simon Roy, who was the first murder book artist, he and I went to do on afterwards to do a book at an image called The Field. Uh, Michael Walsh was, I think, the second murder book story artist to come on. Uh, he and I went on and did Comeback at Image. And Johnny Christmas, who came to do a couple of murder book stories, he and I went on to do uh, uh, Sheltered over at Image. And Declan Shelby came in and did a, a murder book later, later on um, when we did Dark Horse Presents. And he and I did the uh, uh, five-issue Punisher versus Barracuda series at Marvel that will be released at some point, I believe, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure when, but uh, so these, it's almost like it's, it's dating these guys before we get married on a, on a larger project, you know, like um, it's, it's sort of a, a good way of, of working together on a smaller thing and, and just kind of feeling how each person works uh, as much as possible. I want everything to feel um, 
very collaborative, you know, and, and yeah, it's always been like a really good uh, feeling coming off these. And Brian, Brian Levels, right? I almost forgot Brian Level. He, he did a murder book. We did the mantle all right image as well. Um, so yeah, so it's just a, it's a cool way to just sort of try out working with an artist uh, in a, in a way that we, neither of us has to commit long-term to each other. Uh, but hopefully we, you know, create some magic together. What is it about crime and noir stories that speak to you, both as a creator and as a fan? Uh, I, so, I, growing up, like, I, I feel like I've mentioned this to death lightly, and so apologies for anyone who's already heard this, but, uh, so my dad was a, was a cop, he's a retired cop. And my mom is a is now retired nurse, <clears throat> but for a long while she worked sort of in victim services. Um, and so growing up for me, like their day was our dinner table talk, you know, um, they're fairly young parents. Uh, so I like my parents split when I was eight. So that, you know, I think they would have been 30 at that point. Right. So like, you know, they're in their like twenties as a cop and, and this nurse. And so, you know, just hearing them talk about their day uh, and not necessarily like at dinner, but like, I, you know, I, I, I was a, I would eavesdrop on everything as a kid and, and just sort of absorbing that uh, their stories. It was just always sort of a part of our, our life. Um, I, you know, and after my parents split, um, you know, I became, you know, I was kind of a juvenile delinquent uh, for a long while. I, I mellowed out in sort of my uh, my later middle later teens but before that you know I was a kid who was always getting into a lot of trouble and uh, so I think I you know I, I was always kind of drawn to crime like my friends and I used to do some real crappy stuff when we were younger um, <clears throat> but then like when I was a teenager I, I, I mellowed out and uh, I just there's you know stuff I experienced and stuff I, I sort of lived around um, that I could, when I was writing stuff, I could sort of take and, and, and put into what I was writing. Um, and then it, it wasn't until later that I really discovered a lot of crime fiction. Uh, so, you know, when I was, when I went to fine arts, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, in university, uh, I ended up not completing fine arts, I dropped out. And part of the reason I dropped out was Elmore Leonard. Um, I picked up, I <clears throat> even back then I used to read, you know, uh, in high school, I, I'd read about a, a book a week or so. And then when I got to college, it was kind of the same thing. And so I was always down at the used bookstore. And I think I'd gone through the horror section already. So I was like trying to find something else. And uh, I I think it was Cat Chaser was the first Elmer Leonard book I picked up. I can't say for certain. But uh, I picked it up and I read it in a day. Like I was just captivated. <clears throat> and then I went around to all the used bookstores and just picked up every Elmer Leonard book I could find and I don't it was you know a couple dozen probably the guy's got 40 some odd books uh, and I didn't go to school for two weeks I just sat at home in my room and just read Elmer Leonard books back to back like I was burning through them about a book every day or two and uh, and it was I was just completely fascinated I had never really I'd never read any crime novels before and so you know, Elmore Leonard sort of opened up like Richard Stark or Donald West, like writing as Richard Stark, uh, Jim Thompson, Carl Hayes, and uh, Charles Williford. Um, who else? I mean, 
my bookshelf is nowhere near me right now. But, uh, you know, a, a ton of those sort of authors, like George V. Higgins and such. Um, and so I just kind of became obsessed. And around that time, um, you know, I started to discover a lot of the crime films, which oddly, like, I, I'm not, and I, I take a lot of flack for this sometimes, but I'm not really a big noir guy. Like, I'm not big on the, the, the noir films. I, like, I can appreciate them. I understand why people like them but they just don't really do it for me. But they're like the 70s sort of gritty, sweaty crime films like uh, like Dog Day Afternoon or, or, or um, uh, Straight Time. Uh, you know, obviously Scott, obviously Godfather is incredible. Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, that sort of stuff. I, I love that, that era of, of filmmaking and, and crime stories. So yeah, it's just all that sort of stuff was just what I was consuming. Uh, a lot of Italian crime films as well from like the, the uh, um, late seventies, early eighties, like uh, like Wipeout and, and the Cop and Blue Jean series and all that sort of stuff, the, all the Fernando De Leo films. Uh, that's, that's the stuff I was just like consuming at a rapid pace. So it was just uh, the stuff I loved. And then later I discovered um, or maybe around the same time. I, I actually discovered Sin City first. So Sin City was a, like the first sort of crime comic that I discovered that I loved. And then a, a little bit later after I sort of discovered Elmar Leonard and stuff, I uh, discovered Stray Bullets, which uh, I bought, I was staying at my dad's in Sudbury, uh, Ontario, and I'd walked to a store called Comics North there and picked up a copy of Stray Bullets number one. And uh, I... <clears throat> walked about a block and a half from the comic shop and I was just flipping through it and up standing on the street corner and just reading the entire thing on the street corner. And then I turned back and went back to comics North and bought every issue of stray bullets that he had there. Cause it, it was just stray bullets to me. was just mind blowing when it came out. So these are all just the things I consumed and, and, and sort of when I started sort of creating just as a writer this is the stuff I wanted to do. Like that, that kind of stuff that excited me the most. Uh, it's just what I want to do. So we, we dropped a lot of, a lot of names right just then. Um, we did get uh, one Twitter question uh, that plays a little bit off something we already were going to ask, but uh, Robert Secundus asks, uh, he wanted to know specifically if you had a, you know, what your favorite crime comic novel and film were. Uh, my favorite crime comic is a um, a film, or sorry, a comic called uh, "They Found the Car." It's by an, a, an Italian um, writer and illustrator named GP G I P I. Uh, it is nearly impossible to find. It came out like 15 years ago and went out of print right away. Uh, Fanographics released it. It's just a 32-page um, uh, one-shot comic and. Uh, if you can get your hands on it, I, I absolutely um, suggest that uh, you give it a read. It's uh, it's it's an interesting story in that it's told um, the way that it's told is it's about two men trying to sort of clear up um, this this they committed a crime eight years ago, and somehow this car was involved in the, in the crime, and somebody's found the car. And so they need to sort of clean up any loose ends. 
um, and the stories about them doing that. But one of the interesting things about this book is how much information GP gives you and how much he holds back. You never find out what the crime was. You never find out what's in the car that could cause them so much grief. You just know that it, it needs to be dealt with. Um, it's beautifully illustrated um, and well worth your money if you can find it. Uh, he did release a new book this year. Or it came out a few years ago. It was just translated and released this year called One Story, uh, which is not a crime book, but was, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a hardcover uh, that came out through um, Fanographics as well, I believe. I think in terms of favorite like crime series, maybe of comics, mm -hmm. rather you know something people maybe can't find. Um, you know, like Criminal obviously is great. Uh, Stray Bullets, it, it was life changing for me, and I think Scalped uh, by Jason Aaron and Aram Guerrera is an absolutely incredible book uh, that I revisit every couple of years for sure. Um, film, uh, my favorite crime film is. is I want to say it's my favorite just because it feels like it's mine because not a lot of people know about this film, but it's definitely, uh, I, I mentioned it once already, but uh, Straight Time, which is a 70s film, it stars Dustin Hoffman, a young Gary Busey, and a young Kathy Bates uh, about a, a dude who's out from prison trying to stay out of prison. He just released and is trying to stay out of prison, and uh, it's just kind of screwing up all over the place. It's a really good uh, late 70s crime flick. Uh, and the other one was book. Uh, book, I would say, I would say my favorite, the one I recommend most is probably, it's a one, two, it's two books. And, and it's from uh, Elmore Leonard and it's The Switch, uh, followed by Rum Punch. Uh, and Rum Punch is a sequel to The Switch. So read them in that order if you are reading them. <laughs> Rum Punch uh, is more famously known as the film Jackie Brown. Um, but, uh, yeah, those two, those two books are, are quite incredible. This is your first, uh, full on Kickstarter of your own. Yes. How yes. much easier do you think it is that you're working with Nate Cosby who has some experience on these than it would be if you're, you know, doing this sort of on your own? Uh, hopefully a lot easier. Um, I think, you know, at the beginning it's, it's all of us sort of putting in work. I think where hopefully I'm going to see a lot of the, the uh, relief is on, on the back half where we have the fulfillment and, and dealing with all the, all the, I don't know if it's paperwork, whatever comes on the back half is, is the <laughs> stuff I'm most afraid of. Um, the setting it up, that sort of stuff, um, I'm fine to handle. You know, I worked, uh, I worked as a, a, um, <clears throat> Uh, creative director. I forgot my old job title. I was a creative director for a long time, so I dealt with printers, uh, and 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 I know how to put a book together. I know how to send it to a printer and deal with printers and get the quotes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that sort of the production and the things that I, I actually like having being involved in doing. So you know, having someone else take off on the burden of like setting up the Kickstarter. Um, handling the financial like the, you know taking the money and dealing with the financial end and then helping with the fulfillment at the very end uh yeah it's been invaluable it's taken a lot of a lot of stress off of me um you know i just have to be online sort of promoting it which can be tough you know you feel like a carny barker sometimes like <laughs> every day being like hey <laughs> i know this is the 18th day in a row i've told you but here's my kickstarter you should go check it out 
uh, but yeah, it's been good. It's been an interesting thing. Um, I always wanted to try Kickstarter. I've always wanted to do a book on Kickstarter. I think it's a really good platform uh, to bring sort of niche uh, products to, to I, want, I almost said to market. And that sounds like a terrible, like sort of, you know, business corporate meeting talk. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a good way to get a, a niche product out there that, that, um, that might not uh, fare as well or might not be more suited to sort of a, a more um, traditional publishing model. Like it might not, you know, I think that crime is a niche genre. Uh, black and white books are, is niche and then we're doing like a hardcover thing and <clears throat> to sort of get buy-in from a publisher on on something like that can be can be difficult and again with murder book is murder book is kind of my baby so I want to maintain as much control over it right I don't want to bring it to one thing I, I'm very concerned about is bringing you know new murder book stuff to a publisher <clears throat> who may do one and then be like you know it did okay, but we're you know if they don't want to do another one, I don't want to bounce around from publishers with it. I would just rather maintain control of it myself. Um, <clears throat> so I think that Kickstarter gives us that opportunity, and because again, because it's a niche thing, I don't have to worry about selling thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies to make this thing you know work and make sure that you know people who weren't necessarily involved in the creation are getting paid this is the thing that you know Lysander and I can just take directly to readers and we only need like 350 400 readers to believe in it to to make it a reality and so I like that sort of intimacy with the audience and I like I like that I just like that you can you know bring these niche products into into uh, existence uh, right when as we are recording this, you are at a little over $19,000. So right near your $20,000 stretch goal. Mm -hmm. And one of the parts of that stretch goal is that you'll do virtual store appearances for your retail backers, uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, it shows you're supporting the retailers who support you. Um, for you as a creator, how important is the that comic retail experience and market i think it's super important i think like you know obviously without retailers there's no comic book industry but you know i so much of my own uh comic experience is sort of just informed by by uh retailers i've been turned on to you know so many series i would never have even looked at by by good retailers in, in the past so it, it is important to us when we did this that there's you're not gonna not only not cut out retailers but make sure that you know we make something that's important to retail or like that retailers want to back but also add give added extra sort of support to retailers to help them uh sell copies of the book help help them realize you know that hey maybe this is a good investment and, and get it out to their their customers. So that's why, you know, doing those store appearances, I think um, it is, you know, if, if I could fly out to every store and do it, that would be amazing. But obviously that's, that's not practical. Uh, so just, uh, just doing these sort of Skype appearances, I, I'm happy to do. I'm also doing like uh, any retailer backs that I do like a 30 second to 60 second sort of video uh, for them that will have 
better lighting. Nobody listening to this can see the lighting, but you can see how terrible my lighting <laughs> is here. Um, you know, it's just a, to, a thing that they can use on their social media to sort of point, you know, point their customers or point potential customers to their store to let them know that this book is available there. Um, in in yours and Matt's initial uh, text uh, chat about catch and release, uh, at the beginning of the campaign, uh, you'd mentioned that you'd hung up Illustrator uh, in terms of, you know, lettering. Uh, you know, given that you have that background in lettering, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about how you kind of feel out artists. Uh, you know, do you tend to be more particular when it comes to lettering on one of your projects? I mean, obviously on Murderbook, you've got Hassan Atzman Elhau, who's kind of like the, the goat right now uh, of lettering. He's awesome. But I mean, like, even when you're doing like lettering passes on, on say like a big two book, you know, do you tend to be like a little, you know, do you find yourself being more particular than, than, than maybe the next writer would? I'll say sometimes and sometimes not, I think because I understand um, how stressful it is to be a letterer and, and to deal with a particular writer, not a specific writer, but one who's overly particular about their, 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 uh, their work. Um, it, it can be it can be a nightmare you know like sometimes you work with when i was a letter you'd work with writers who would use uh the post let like the first pass of lettering as their chance to rewrite everything you know and mm -hmm. that's that adds so much work onto the letter it, it's not a fair thing so i think less than you know like i'm always sort of particular about how things are done and i will give lettering notes but i i think that it's made me more compassionate uh, two letters and I try to make sure that uh, when the art is all complete, I go through my scripts and I do another like draft where I tweak my lettering, you know, sometimes panels got to, uh, or um, speech bubbles, I have to bounce balloons or, or bounce panels. Jesus, <laughs> I'm losing it. Um, you know, you'll have to bounce them around from one panel to the next to make room. Sometimes there's just not room because of how the, the artwork is. Uh, so sometimes you'll trim trim the dialogue and sometimes you just cut things because it's not needed anymore with the art. Uh, so I try and do that. I try to make their life as easy as possible. Um, yeah, I, and I don't think, I think in all the years of writing, I've had maybe one bad experience where I was like, you know, I, where I wrote the editor, just like, like, like every page needed something in, in terms of lettering. But that was like, <clears throat> that's very rare. I, the, you know, the writers who work at uh, Marvel, who are the, the folks, or the letterers who move, work at Marvel, sorry, uh, they know what they're doing. They're usually, they're usually pretty good. And, and so the notes are minor. So yeah, it's really just, I'm trying not to, I'm not trying not to upset them. <laughs> gotcha. Um, where are you guys currently with production? On, on catch and release. So we're, we were using the Kickstarter to help pay for Lissandro. So that, that's where part of it's going. So we're fairly early on. We're about like 15%. In. So our, our goal is I, I think we have a, our deadline is, and I don't have my thing in front of me right now, but the deadline uh, is much earlier than, than what we posted on the Kickstarter. Uh, I tried to build in extra time because, you know, I backed. I think I've backed, I don't know, like 70, 75 Kickstarters at this point. Mm -hmm. And I normally don't get annoyed. At this point, I don't even pay attention anymore to when they're coming out because I know they come out when they come out. But I know some people pay very specific attention to that. And um, 
so I wanted to build in extra time just so that hopefully we can get it at earlier than, than what we said. So we're, I don't know, we're, we're 15, 20% in, but it's, you know, <clears throat> it'll, it'll be done. I've worked with Losandra before. I would never do a Kickstarter with someone I did not know, uh, I had not worked with before because I, I need to, the whole idea of, of somebody ghosting or like, you know, taking very long uh, keeps me awake at night. So I, I, I needed to make sure that I was working with an artist who had every confidence in that he could, he could not only meet but exceed the deadline. This this also protects Matt's streak of every Kickstarter he's backed uh, being completed. Yeah, so far so good. So far, uh, I I've only had one or two. I would say my worst experience with Kickstarter is I back a lot of board games, and when I moved from BC to Halifax, I had all these board games that were six, seven you know, 12 months late and they all decided to ship in the two week period or the one week period, sorry, where I had like no actual address. Oh boy. Because we're, we're, like, it's a week long drive across the country. And like I had, I, you know, couldn't give them anywhere to send the packages to. And it, it became a whole thing where I had to email each one individually. Some of them, you know, they, it all worked out. So nobody sent it to my old address, but it was uh yeah, it was a bit of a cluster. <laughs> but this one, yeah, absolutely, it will be done. I have no, no stresses about that. I've got a couple that, you know, I've backed that are about, you know, five, six years now. And then I keep getting those emails once every six months or they're like, we're almost there. Sending it to press in, in six weeks. And you're like, all right. I've got one that's at four years and they just had the photo of books in hand. So I'm like, nice. score. No, <laughs> my... My anxiety would never, like, I, I, I'm a, a pretty anxious dude uh, at the best of times. And, and there are particular things that would just keep me up at night. And that, that is number one. That was like when I started this Kickstarter, I was like, it has to be somebody, you know, when I, whoever I'm working with has got to be someone I've worked with before, just to make sure that everything, everything goes copacetic. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what's been your biggest uh, takeaway from this project and, and, you know, doing it through Kickstarter and everything. Well, I think <clears throat> the biggest thing right now is that, you know, like there, I, it feels to me like there are people out there who are, who are willing to support it. So there is, you know, an opportunity for me to sort of do these style projects. And, and my hope before starting this one is that if this one did well enough, uh, I, I'm hoping to come back once a year and do a, you know, same sort of hardcover, uh, the page count will probably vary from project to project because the one thing I did with catch and release is when I started writing it, I didn't have a page count uh, in mind when I started it. It was just this story is going to be as long as it needs to be mm-hmm. and no shorter and no longer. And I want that to be sort of my motto when I'm writing um, stories going forward. I want them to be, a you know, <clears throat> I hate saying, you know, all killer and no filler, but like I, I don't want to had the this idea that it has to be 120 pages so i'm going to pad out this 80 page story to you know 120 at the same time i don't you know if i have a story that i'm telling that's you know 170 pages then i'll I'll just take the space to do that Mm -hmm. so um my hope is that you know once a year uh we can sort of come back and make it like an annual tradition and hopefully you know when the book comes out people dig it i think that they will I'm, i'm super happy with it uh and uh, 
you know, hopefully then they'll, they'll keep coming back and, and hopefully we can take in new readers and such. And uh, so that's the hope. So the, the Kickstarter so far has been good. I, I think, you know, this is all, I feel like we're in, in the honeymoon stage with it right now. Like it, ask me again after the whole fulfillment thing and I have to sign like, you know, and I've got to sign all those book plates and stuff, but so far so good. I, I, I've been really enjoying it and it feels, it feels real good. So as we enter the back quarter of the interview, we're going to spend a little time with some of your uh, other work, uh, sure. starting with uh, some of your ex work. Uh, when you wrote extermination, you introduced teen cable and then carried on writing him in X-Force. Where did that sort of idea of de-aging the grizzled soldier to a teen come from? And as you had, at that point, pretty recently written an arc in Cable, what were some of the differences between writing grizzled Cable versus teen Cable? So originally when I pitched the idea to Marvel, it was going to be like a... 10 year old cable like a damian wayne style character oh wow you know just coming out guns a blazing but um it, it, knowing any you know if you've read cable like uh, uh the adventures of of um gene and cyclops or the scanny um what the hell is the scanny series called scanny song yeah yeah there we go thank you <laughs> um but uh those um you know, obviously, if, it, if he's a 10-year-old kid, it doesn't make sense if you take those as being canon, right? Like, and so I really wanted to make it canon. What I liked about sort of Teen Cable is <clears throat> you have, like, Cable, who's been in Marvel Universe for however long. He's, like, sort of a grizzled vet. You know, he's a grumpy sort of dude who's been at it for however many years. Um, and I kind of like the idea of bringing in the no-nonsense, first-year Marine, uh, everything is black and white uh, Cable, like the, the, the younger version of Cable. Like, what was he like when he first started as a soldier? And um, so I thought it was just, a, a, you know, I thought it was a fun concept to uh, have him. Because going in, just back up a bit, I guess, going into extermination, um you know, the, the end goal was always just, you know, to send the younger X-Men, the, the, the younger five X-Men back in time to sort of close that story that had been started by, uh, by Bendis and Stuart Immerman back in the day. Um, but the one sort of question about it really is like, if Cable was doing his job, they should never have stayed in the first place, right? Like that's, that's the kind of thing he's out there to stop, mm-hmm. sort of time anomalies. And so it, I thought it was just really interesting. It would be really interesting if we have, uh, I, you know, when I pitch it to the room, you know, that he gets, he gets killed and he gets retired. And it turns out that it's a younger version of him who realizes that his older version has become soft and uh, needs to be made redundant and replaced with the younger version who will actually get the job done. And uh, I know, I just thought it was a fun idea. It was, uh, when I pitch it in the room, I, I will say it was one of the most divisive ideas. Um, <laughs> It was it was a a pretty uh, pretty incredible argument that that went on back and forth, and it was actually the only time I've ever seen this done in in a writer's room where it was put to a vote, like put to a vote in the room. And I think we like the the teen cable, uh, kid cable, I call him, um, 
won by like two, like it was, you know, it was a pretty tight race, I'll say, but he, he won by <laughs> a, a couple, a few votes. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, I just thought it was a fun idea. It would be a fun thing to play with. Uh, and originally at the end of my X-Force run, he was, that was going to be it for him. I was going to send him back um, and, and we would sort of be cable-less in, in the Marvel U for a little bit. Uh, but uh, they had wanted to use him in all the Dawn of X stuff. So uh, I, instead of sending him back, I left him on the table for a bit longer. That was one thing I was curious about. Like at the, at the time, you know, I know uh, Jonathan Hickman was working sort of in the background. He hadn't been announced yet or anything. But, you know, uh, so I wasn't sure like how in the mix he was at that point. Uh, he was at the meetings. We knew, we, okay. I think we knew about all the Don X stuff about two years before it happened. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> which I don't know how it didn't leak. Um, <laughs> so with that many people knowing, but uh, yeah, he was, he was in the room talking about it for, I think about two years before it happened. A year and a half at least. So social media can be a, a wonderful place to, to garner thoughtful feedback on major changes like uh, killing a major X character and replacing sure him with the that? DH version. <laughs> 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 well, I'll skip right to my question. <laughs> How long did you have your notifications muted for? It, it was interesting. Uh, that was the first time where, you know, not the last time, but the first time that, you know, <laughs> folks came after me on, on Twitter. They were angry about it. And it was fine. I expected it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't expect how nasty some folks could get. Uh, but I think that's just Twitter. And, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I, it's it just so the way, you know, like the other day I had to like block a dude for getting mad at me for making some comment about how not every filmmaker needs to make a movie over two hours long. And apparently that, like, <laughs> that's that some folks off. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was interesting. It was, I think, you know, I'm, um, I'm fairly good for stepping away from Twitter when that happens. Um, so like when I, when I mentioned before that, you know, I'm an anxious person, like I, I'm, you know, I, I mean that in the fact that I, I legitimately have uh, anxiety issues mm -hmm. at, at times and, and they're largely sort of under control. Um, but at times I just need to know when they're going to be triggered and, mm -hmm. and move away from the trigger. So when Twitter goes nuts, it, I just, I just shut it off and, and I'll just uh, take a break from it for a week or two or, or how long. I think actually I took almost all 2019 off Twitter just cause it was, it was just too much. It, it, and it's not just the, the anything directed necessarily at me or, or, or people around me. It's just, it in general is 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 a lot sometimes, and it's um, it's good to take a break from it and get away. But yeah, I, I you know, but with the cable thing, I had a lot of people mad. There's one one or two um, cable fans who I eventually did win over to the kid cable side because mm -hmm. uh, they were just furious, and you know you're going to get it if their username or their <laughs> their profile picture is anything to do with cable right like sure. mm -hmm. if it's like cable fan 1984 <laughs> you're yeah. toast so, you know whatever whatever it's coming from them they're they're not going to be happy but uh yeah it, it it was pretty tense for for a few days but i, I weathered it out so uh, on to happier x characters sort of um it is near christmas 
And back in 2018, you took part in uh, an X-Men Christmas one-shot where you wrote a one-page Glob Herman story that I'm pretty sure started Glob's transition to a fan favorite. Did you realize you were creating the Cults of Glob when you wrote that page? Uh, I didn't realize, but I hoped. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Glob Herman fan, and I'd already been using him a lot in Old Man Logan up until that point. Mm-hmm. Was sort of the... Uh, he was the X-Men who had his turn being taken under Wolverine's or Logan's wing. And uh, so, yeah, I was, um, I've always been a really big Glob fan. And so I always try and use them. I did not expect that that, that Christmas story I did was going to get that much, as much reaction as it did. It, it seemed to like a lot of people seem to really uh, um uh, dig it, I guess, but uh, yeah, I did not. I didn't understand. I didn't expect it from that, to be honest. But I'm happy. I'm glad. Every time I, every December now, when it rolls around and it, it pops up, I'm always thrilled. <laughs> um, one of the other writers at uh, Xavier Files, uh, Liz Large, once described Glob as being shaped like a friend, which uh, it's a phrase I I, I love. Uh, you know, he he gets to be he gets to be a comic relief character often, or you know, this like sweet cinnamon roll type. Uh, you know, with his chickens and his loxa recipes. But uh, in, in your penultimate issue of New Mutants, you know, you have him lose it on the head of the Docs website. And uh, we get a glimpse at, you know, a lot of the pain in his backstory that, you know, we didn't know about before. And, uh, you know, people forget, and by people, I mean me, really, that, you know, he was part of the Riot of Xavier's crew back in the Morrison run, uh, you know, Quentin Quire's gang. So he's probably as a character probably had more of a growth arc over the years than, than a lot of others without, you know, even realizing it, you know, when, when did you kind of first look at, at him and say, this is my son, I must protect him. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think from the moment I started writing him, like I, I, I like the idea that like, cause he's, he's kind of been over the years, depending on you know the writer, he's sometimes a little bit inconsistent with like what his personality is like. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of approach him as like the Charlie Brown of the X-Men, you know, like he's that sort of lovable goof that, that, that other folks are going to pick on. And yeah, I don't know. He was just that one character where I sort of um, really sort of glommed onto and just really wanted to do some interesting things with that character and wanted to see if I could, you know, take a character. I, I wouldn't say, you know, you know, there were, have been some really great glob, you know, stories involving glob in the past. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I just wanted to kind of just keep pushing it and see if I could make him make more people love him the, the same way that I did. And that, that issue that you were talking about where he's talking about his anger was actually just a lot of uh, me talking about like a lot of the anxiety issues I had uh, when I was younger, but, you know, sort of putting that a bit on glob uh, for his own backstory. So I, I actually injected some of myself into him in that, in that issue a little bit uh, where he was going through that. And that was, that one was an interesting thing because I got a lot of feedback from that, from, from folks who would uh, sent me emails and stuff afterwards that, you know, that it was something that they could relate, relate to. And, and so that was, again, not something I saw coming, but you know, something that I, I'm glad uh, people were able to relate to and, and kind of see themselves in a little bit. Um, you got to play a little bit of an off-the-rails game of Exquisite Corpse with the other uh, X-Riders in the uh, Empire tie-in. Uh, do, do you have a favorite bit from that that you uh, contributed? 
trying to remember everything I did in there. I think, <laughs> oh God, because I, I wrote that like nine months ago now. And it was such a weird thing that I can barely, <laughs> I, this sounds terrible for a writer to say that they barely can remember what they did. But, I, but no, listen, it, it's also crazy too, because I'm thinking about it like it was just a couple months ago, but also right. that book was originally solicited like in March for June or something like yeah. that. So. <laughs> but uh, no, I think I, in my section was when the, wasn't the, the Katati got up and because they'd been bitten by the zombies and the zombies gave up on them because they were just plants. And then the, the bit that I'd put in that I, I thought would be fun to play around with was when the Katati themselves rose up and were these weird plant zombies uh, walking around. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a weird one. It was fun, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was goofy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of your image books and one that I devoured as it came out was sheltered with uh, previous podcast guest Johnny Christmas. Uh, it's the story of a survivalist camp where when the, they believe that the end is very much nigh, uh, the kids go full on children of the corn, kill the adults and prepare, prepare for the end times with typically disastrous results. Where did the idea for that story come from? So <clears throat> that one uh, was interesting because so Johnny Christmas and I, uh, uh, we both rented studio space in this uh, building in Vancouver where, you know, if that building ever exploded, I think 95% of Vancouver's comic talent would be wiped out uh, because it's like really cheap studio space above a comic shop. And so there's a bunch of us in there. So Johnny and I were down the hall from one another and we would sort of talk periodically. And uh, <clears throat> I think we'd done a murder book story and we talked about sort of pitching a thing. So I think what happened is we just got a couple six packs of beer and went to, I went down to his studio and we just sat there and sort of just started shooting ideas back and forth. You know, he had a bunch of ideas. I had a bunch of ideas and originally sheltered was going to be a, uh, paranormal story it was going to be a i can't i can't remember what my hook for it was originally but it was it had a lot to do with the black-eyed kids that you know if anyone's into sort of like paranormal uh, popular par paranormal stories the black-eyed kids are these like weird harbingers of death that if they show up on your step and and, and ask to be invited in and you invite them in then you're dead um uh, and I found them really creepy and I'd always wanted to do something around uh, that. And for some reason, I can't remember why I paired it with a, a survivalist community. I don't, I, I wish I could. This is like almost, you know, eight, nine years ago now. But uh, originally we kind of were circling around that idea. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of research on survivalists uh, and more specifically sort of doomsday preppers. Uh, it was something that I found like just a topic that I found really fascinating. And there was, during my research, there's for some reason, I guess it shouldn't be surprising. There's a, a podcast for everything, but there's a ton of doomsday prepper podcasts. So I was listening to a lot of those. Um, and I was watching this show called, uh, I think it was just called doomsday preppers. And it, uh, in one of them, one episode which essentially inspired sheltered it was a guy who was training teenage kids uh, you know he had a compound where he lived alone he had like a million guns and stuff but he would run these training seminars for teenagers 
to teach them how to survive on, you know, like how to use guns and all this sort of stuff, which I always thought was the craziest thing to me because teenagers are unpredictable, right? <laughs> like completely unpredictable. So why would you want to teach uh, end the world scenarios to teenagers and show them where you know, like your gun supplies are like the end of the world comes that's where they're going and like you're not walking out of there like the teenagers are going to take over and so it just it you know that sort of episode and, and thinking that about it sort of inspired this idea that you know um we would have this camp that is sort of newish enough that they, they you know they wouldn't have supplies enough supplies for everyone to go underground and these kids would think shit this like apocalyptic apocalyptic situation is happening in the next week and you know they sort of children of the corn their parents they they, they, took, they killed them all off but their rationale behind it is that it's it's to put it's to save them to put the parents out of the misery um because only half of the po- their population could go underground and survive the however many years they, i think it was three years they would have to survive or longer whatever it was uh three years yes and um the whole thing is that the younger generation is the one who are going to sort of come out at the end and they're going to repopulate the planet. And so they're kind of just doing the thing that the parents taught them to do. And I thought there was something about that that was really interesting, uh, uh, completely terrifying. And yeah, eventually, so it, it completely dropped all the paranormal bit that we had in it originally and became this thing that uh, Johnny and I sort of developed and we would, you know, sit in the studio working on it, uh, working at the idea. And yeah. I think that's the question, right? Where did yep. it come from? I, yep. <laughs> sometimes, I, sometimes I ramble on. I'm like, nope. did I answer the question? I can't. You, you right. absolutely <laughs> did. Because I will tell you, it is one of those wow. books that, especially in the past six months or so, has been in my own little anxiety spirals. Because right. I look at this and it feels like this is just to the side of reality when I look at the news sometimes. Uh, did you have any inkling that this was going to be scarily prescient when you did this in 2013? No, no. no. It, are you asking if I knew that the COVID was going to happen? Not specifically. <laughs> uh, no, I think like, you know, I think that with the rise of sort of uh, prepper culture and survivalists, um, I don't know. It, it, uh, it seems to, I don't, know. I, I don't have an answer for that. Like, I feel like people think the world sometimes is a lot worse than it is. Um, you know, uh, it seemed to really spike right after mm-hmm. Obama first got elected. Um, and there was that sort of, uh, idea that he was going to come for everyone's guns, which I think just caused a lot of people to sort of dig in deeper and, and, uh, but it's yeah, I, I I obviously could not have for foreseen anything that's happening right now, and I think I'd like to think you know, you know my kid hasn't tried to kill me yet, but you know, <laughs> I'd like to think the kids wouldn't do that. After that, we're going to go to one of the lighter and more fun segments of our show. Hey, folks, it's Pet right. Corner. Um, so looking at your Twitter. Uh, you posted over the summer that uh, you have both a cat and a dog. Um, Uh, Two cats and two dogs. Two cats and two dogs. So uh, I'll start out as the cat guy. Tell me about your cats. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we got two cats, uh, as just mentioned. So I've got uh, lasagna. Uh, He's an orange 
uh, uh, domestic, uh, not domestic, uh, exotic short-haired cat. So he looks very much like Garfield. If anyone you know wants to scroll through my Instagram, you'll see a bunch of photos of him <laughs> there. Uh, and we've had him seven years now, seven and a half years. Super cool cat. So he's just chill as hell. Like he just, he relax. He's just relaxed all the time. He's just sleeping. He's, he's, uh, I don't think he's ever, he's scratched me once, I think in seven years. And that was my own fault. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's just a super relaxed cat. And then our other one that we have, his name is Waffles. And he is, uh, we adopted him just over a year and a half ago now from the SPCA here. He was a street cat. Uh, they don't know how long he'd been living on the street. Um, but when he was living on the street, he got really bad uh, gingivitis in all his mm. teeth. And so he ha- uh, they had to remove all of his teeth. So he has no teeth now. It has not stopped him. He wouldn't know. <laughs> like that guy, he, he eats like crazy. He's like, when we got him, he was real skinny. And we thought he was a short-haired cat because um, uh, like when we got him, he had short black. He's all black. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he had uh, what they referred to as stress, uh, stress-induced alopecia. So he had like mm. bald patches, and his hair was really short. But it turns out he's like, he's actually quite fluffy. Uh, <laughs> he just needed to be indoors, and uh, he's not skinny at all anymore. He 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 gorges himself despite not having teeth. And one of his favorite hobbies is actually to like chew on your fingers hmm. uh, with his gums, which is like. Um, I'd, I'd like to think it's just something that feels good on his gums and not something where if he had teeth, he would just be gnawing our fingers off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's also a super relaxed cat. He's uh, We're lucky that both our cats are, are really chill. Um, uh, completely relaxed. Waffles is really uh, affectionate towards lasagna. Um, and lasagna is sort of a, has a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, I think, from our previous cat. Uh, Weetzie, who uh, was sort of mean and would swat uh, lasagna anytime he was near. Uh, but Waffles loves to like just like grab onto lasagna and just clean him. But it's like, it's weird because it's like a forced cleaning. Like he'll, he'll just kind of like hold him down and just lick him clean. It's, it's adorable, but it also looks a little bit, I don't know, a little bit questionable. It always does look unsettled. Like I've seen my dogs do that to each other, and right. yeah, it is always a little unsettling. But uh, yeah, and, and now tell us about your dogs. <laughs> so we got two dogs. Um, my oldest dog, she's nine. Her name is Abby, and she is a Havanese. Um, she is fine, I guess. <laughs> she, <laughs> okay. she loves my wife, um, and I am okay. I'm like, it's definitely, she's like one of those people who prefers to go, you know, prefers Coca-Cola. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm her going to a restaurant and finding out that only Pepsi's available sort of thing. Like, you know, I'll, I'll do, but, uh, not, not what you wanted. Um, she's fine. She's, she's small. I don't know if you guys know how big, like Havanese or they're, they're like tiny, mm-hmm. tiny dogs. Uh, so she barks at everything when we go for a walk. It's really obnoxious. So she'll bark at people. She'll bark at uh, other dogs. Uh, she's now barking. Our, our, one of our neighbors has white cutout reindeer in the lawn. She barks at those. <laughs> uh, half the time we don't know what she's barking at. She just barks at shadows. Um, she's okay. She's fine. Like She's mellow in the house and stuff. Uh, and then our other dog is Dagger. And he's part Corgi. 
part Westy, um, part asshole. Um, <laughs> and we got him three years ago. So I used to, uh, when I was 19, I, I got um, my very own dog, you know, first, like, you know, mm-hmm. on, on, my, on my own, I have a dog named Stuart, and she was a Westie Corgi cross as well. Mm. And she's the greatest dog I've ever had in my life. Just incredible dog, just so, so chill all the time, so mild-mannered, so smart, like you could teach her something, she would pick it up in a day. Mm. Um, I could walk her anywhere without a leash. She never barked at anyone. She was friendly to everyone. Just so great. And we, I had her, um, you know, we had her, had to have her put down in 2011. So she, you know, she was 17, so she lived quite a while. And uh, <clears throat> for the longest time, I swore I was just one, we're going to stick with one dog. You know, we actually ha- had another dog as well back then that had passed. And then we were down to Abby. And uh, I swore I was going to have one dog. And I just happened across an ad for Wesley Corgi Cross puppies that someone had. And I was like, oh, like, what are the odds of Wesley Corgi Cross? <laughs> and you don't see them often. Now, Stuart was blonde, Dagger, he's like a, a sort of a brindley. He looks a lot like Toto uh, from Wizard of Oz. Um, and he, in the photo of the ad, he had a, a bent over ear. One of his ears was bent over, mm-hmm. which Stuart also had. And so I was like, I don't believe in reincarnation, but there was part of me that's like, <laughs> this, this is Stuart again. Is, is Stuart back? And, uh, you know, the ad was for a place that was two hours from where I lived. And I, I called my wife, she was at work, and I said, you know, like, I need you to stop me. I saw this dog that looks like Stuart for adoption online and I'm going to about to drive the, you know, four hour round trip to get this dog. So just talk me out of it. Like I just need you to talk me out of it. And she said, no, go get the dog. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so I <laughs> drove four hours and got the dog and you know, we have him now and he's, he's smart like Stuart was. He is smart, but he's a dick. And so, like he, he, like he's really selective when when he when he wants to listen and when he doesn't. And uh, he he's better for like uh, I found I don't know if you guys have ever had two dogs. I, they, I have two dogs. Okay, do you know how they feed off each other? If you take them for a walk, sometimes if one is barky, uh, you know, if you go buy another dog, like I've always had that. Whenever we've had two dogs, they'll feed off of each other. That one of them at least will start barking at the other dog, um, or maybe I'm a bad owner. I don't know, but this has always been my, my experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's better. I, I've got him trained. He doesn't bark anymore. He's usually really good for coming back when I call him, but every so often, like he'll see, like, we've got a lot of deer in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to go after these deer and he's like, you know, he's like, I don't know, 15 pounds. Right, these deer will stomp him to death, but he doesn't give a shit. He'll just run down the street after them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then he just, he likes, he doesn't bark so much outside, but inside the house mm-hmm. will bark at just about anybody walking by. We have a big bay window in our living room that looks out on the street. And if anybody walks by our house, they're getting barked at from inside, which is yeah. super obnoxious when you're, you know, working at home all day. Uh, I'll, I'll see you uh, bark, barking at strangers passing by and raise you barking every time the ice maker makes ice nice. right i don't have we don't have that we don't have an ice maker but he might he might do that anyway he's any sort of strange noise if the garage door opens he'll lose his mind uh, and he's terrified he actually won't go in the garage he's terrified uh, i think he's equated the garage door opening to what it actually is 
and it terrifies him. So he will not go near the garage, uh, which is, it's fine. It's fine. I don't need him in the garage. Now, uh, with, 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 you've got dogs and cats living together. Were the Ghostbusters right? Did that lead to mass hysteria? No, it, it hasn't. Um, and in fact, I think, um, I don't know if I can, I don't want to mute, uh, but uh, I cannot bring my screen up here. But if, if folks go on Instagram, mm-hmm. you can find, like, my, they're all actually pretty chill with each other. Uh, I have, like, a, a couple photos of them just all chilling out together on the, on the couch. Um, there's one photo I have where my kid is asleep and they're like, uh, they're sleeping around her, like, you know. Uh, so they're all, they're all pretty relaxed. Um, they don't, I think uh, Dagger, he's the one who's part asshole. He will chase waffles sometimes. Uh, and I don't know why he does, but he'll just sort of run after him for whatever reason. Uh, but waffles will turn around and give him a swat. <laughs> so it's, not, it's not a huge thing. But yeah, back in March of this year, I posted something on Instagram where, where I've got all, all the pets are just laying on the bed. Uh, together so they they get along fine that's great no problems i i found i've always almost always had uh, cats and dogs at the same time like <clears throat> not not necessarily this many and I, I don't know if i'd recommend this many um but yeah we've always had at least one cat and and one dog and usually usually it's fine i, I don't think really any problems i think the very first time i had a cat and dog was when i was like 11 or 12 and our really what usually happens is the cat kicks the shit out of the dog and then the dog just ignores the cat afterwards. Like it, I've never, I've never had a situation where the dog is usually like other than mine chasing the cat where the dog is usually aggressive towards the cat. It's usually the other way around. The cat is usually pretty good for putting the dog in their place. Um, so this is our, our, uh, our cool down question. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, uh, so I just finished reading the second volume of Something's Killing Children, mm. um, which I think is great. Um, <clears throat> trying to think of what else I am reading. I'm, re- I'm currently reading my way through the new Batman from issue one. I'm up to about issue 40 right now. Mm. I am reading a book Paul, by Paul uh, Tremblay, which is, he's a Canadian author of horror books. And uh, I'm just trying to think of what I got my last time to the comic book store. And, and, you know what? I'm drawing a blank. Every time I get asked this question, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> every time every, we, we need to find, we need to give people warning because right. everybody draws a blank. Here, actually ask this question. If we were recording video, I could, and I actually had the wherewithal, I could make a supercut of people <laughs> looking around the room when we asked the question, like, like, like Chaz well, commentary I, at the end of the usual suspects. <laughs> I have a, I have a, a, a pile over here that you can't see. It's off, off camera here, but uh, <laughs> Of, I have because I'm kind of lazy. Uh, I, I usually leave all my books up on my nightstands, and then I have a section on my bookshelves here where the, the books to be filed go. So books mm-hmm. I've already read. So I can actually look over here and see. I've got the losers that I just recently read, recently read, reread uh, Next Wave, uh, recently reread all of Jason Aaron's Thor and and Donny Cates and and the Klein's new, uh, the first volume I just read. Um, 
I was rereading some of Sandman. Uh, Little Bird uh, by uh, Ian Bertram and uh, Darcy Van Polgi, uh, which is Darcy's a guy I, weirdly I know from way back uh, from years ago. I, you know, I, he lives in Vancouver and I, we did a short film together when he started planning Little Bird. And so, you know, <clears throat> I was taught, I've been talking to him about it. I think he started in 2014 or 2015 planning it out. So, mm -hmm. Uh, I just read Watchmen again for the first time in a long time. Mm. Um, I really liked it. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but Watchmen is a very good book. <laughs> um, it, it, but it's one that I didn't connect with when I was younger. Uh, I was always, uh, I used to always say that my Watchmen was Craven's Last Hunt. That was a big book for me mm. when I was younger growing up. But mm -hmm. uh, for some reason, I didn't connect with Watchmen when I was younger. But uh, in recent years, really enjoying it. Um, let's see what else I got here. I don't know. I think that's all you're going to get out of me, to be honest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that uh, last story, or one, not last story, sorry, one story by GP yeah. uh, uh, that I talked about earlier that just came out a, a, a month or two ago. And I've read it a couple times already. It's, uh, it's so good. Uh, well, Ed, this has been great. Uh, how can people uh, follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, you can just find me on Twitter, um, just at Ed Brisson, no spaces or anything like that. Nice and easy. Uh, you can check out my website, edbrisson.com. Uh, I have a newsletter there if you want to subscribe and send out, you know, once every two weeks or whatever, just sort of updates on what's going on and all that sort of jazz. Um, I, have, I should have a bunch of new announcements coming out soon, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. All, all my things I was working on got sort of pushed back, so... You know, I, I was hoping things would be announced by now, but soon. So those those will be in my newsletter. Of course, I'll be tweeting the hell out of them as well. And in my Instagram, if you want to go on my Instagram, it's just at, uh, I think it's Ed underscore Brisson. Somebody got in there before me <laughs> and got Ed Brisson and has only posted once. Has like a photo of a coffee cup, I believe. And uh, I'm so mad. He's, he's had that account for seven years and not used it. I want it. But uh Instagram is mostly just me posting photos of like uh, my pets and um, I do a lot of cooking. So, uh, you know, things I'm cooking and stuff like that. So it's not really, if you, if you're looking for comic stuff, it's not going to be on the Instagram. All right. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Well, thanks a lot guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ comics are now part of the Xavier files media empire meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones at Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other.
WNQA.